Well, good to see everybody today in church. My name is Jason, and uh, I'm the pastor, and uh, just glad we get to be together. And as I get started with my message today, I want to just give you a little bit of behind the scenes. I'm just going to, I'm going to tell on myself a little bit and just let you know, and some of you who grew up in church, you know this, but you can always tell what's happening in the life of the pastor by what he is preaching on consistently week after week, all right? It's just, I'm just letting you know for the rest of your church attending days. So anytime, like, let's just say the pastor, like, all his examples week after week after week is, like, self, about self-doubt or confidence. So you can rest assured the pastor is struggling with confidence, and he's telling on himself. Or if the pastor is, like, always talking about, like, fighting in your marriage, all right? You better be praying for Andrea if I'm always giving examples about fighting in marriage. It's because the pastor is having fights in his marriage or their marriage. And so anytime a pastor is talking about something, not just one time, but over and over and over and over and again, you can rest assured that there's something happening with the pastor. And the reason I'm telling you that is because as we read, as George read for us these verses today, again, we come to an example of the first Christians. We're taking the fall to read these stories of the first Christians, calling it wildfire because that's what happened. The Christianity and the church grew and spread like wildfire. So again, we come to a story where Christians are praying together and something dramatic happens. Something powerful happens. And and I don't know how much you were paying attention when when George was reading these verses, but I just want to highlight a few of them to you. It says that they were praying together. They had great boldness. The place where they were meeting was filled with the Spirit. Uh, they were united in heart and mind. They felt that what they owned was not their own. They shared everything that they had. They testified powerfully. Great blessing was upon them all. They were sharing everything that they had. I mean, we read these types of descriptions, and I said this to you a couple of weeks ago because there was a similar passage like this in Acts chapter 2. So it was a similar passage to this, but I said that to you then. I'm going to say it to you now. When a pastor reads something like this, it's impossible to not read it and say like, I want that. It's not just pastors though. It's Christians too. Like we should read that and we should say, I want that. I want that. And there have been times in the Bible and times throughout history when, when there have been seasons like this, seasons like this, and the, and the word that we would use to describe this, the Bible word that we would use to describe something like this, is revival. Revival. Everybody say that word. Revival. Some of you grew up in religious settings where you're very familiar with that word. You know, you heard it all the time. Others of you, maybe this is a, a new word for you, revival. But that's what we read about today. It's what we've been reading about Throughout these stories and passages in the book of Acts, we're reading about revival. Revival. What do I mean by that? How how would I define uh, the word revival? Well, there's lots of maybe more technical ways to define it. I'm just going to give you a very simple Jason definition of revival. Here's the simple Jason definition. Revival is when old things feel fresh again. Revival is when old things 
feel fresh again. So maybe you've heard the phrase revival with like a Broadway production or a musical artist or a, a, a movie or something like that. What that means is, is that they're bringing back something that was old, but it's gonna feel fresh. Well, spiritually speaking, when we talk about revival, we're saying that in the Bible, we see these stories. Historically, five or six times, there have been significant revivals throughout the world. And what we mean when we say significant revivals is we mean that there is this season of time, this extended period of time, where a faith or a church or a movement or Christians that had a, a faith that felt old or stagnant or dry, God breathed on it and it felt new again. It felt new again. And that's what's happening in our story today. We're finishing up the second part. Last week, we read the story about John, about Peter and John. They heal the crippled man by the gate and uh, he's healed and they are arrested and they come and they stand before the religious leaders for this trial and uh, they end up letting them go. And Peter and John return back to where the other Christians are and it says that they begin to pray, which I think is a great place for us to stop and just maybe take inventory of ourselves. If we were just let go from a trial where maybe we could have been arrested or beaten and we got released, is that the first place we would go? Would we go find our church family and pray together? I think that's something that can challenge us from, from this story. But even more than that, what I want to try to highlight to you today, and I'm just going to try to share my heart, maybe a little different sermon than I would normally give to you. What I, what I want to do today is, is I really want to, to talk to us as a church family and challenge you as your pastor. I want to talk on the topic of praying for revival, praying for revival, praying for God to, do, to, to take something that is old and make it feel fresh again. Praying for something that is old and making it feel fresh again. And so as I'm talking about prayer today, I'm not necessarily talking about prayer in a personal way. We spend a lot of time talking about personal prayer. You know, waking up in the morning and spending time with Jesus and praying in your car at work or whatever it is. We spend a lot of time talking about personal prayer, and we should, and we will continue to. But as you read through these stories of the first Christians in the book of Acts and see it begin to spread like wildfire, what you come back to time and time and time again is that not only were they personally praying, which there's actually not examples of that in there. I'm sure that that's what they were doing because it was part of their Jewish tradition. But not only were they personally praying, but over and over and over again, they were praying together. They were praying together. And when they would do that, something powerful would happen. Something powerful would happen. God would speak. God's spirit uh, would descend on them. People would be healed. Visions would be had. There, there was all kinds of different things that were happening, but not just because they were praying personally, but because they were praying corporately. They, they were praying together. And so that's what I want to talk about for just a few minutes today. I want to share my heart, some things I've been thinking about for us as a church, about praying together. Not praying so much by ourselves, but praying together and specifically praying for revival. Specifically praying for, for old things to feel fresh again. Because here's what I know in a room this size with this many people. There are many of you, many of you, who would say, I'm a Christian, but I, 
my faith feels stale or stagnant or old or crusty or I need, I need God to breathe on me. I need God to touch me, God to bless me. I want to experience a, a fresh joy of my salvation, as the psalmist would say. I need God. I want, I want something old, my faith, my Christianity, my relationship with Jesus. I want it to feel fresh again. And I want that for us as a church community. And I want that for us as a, as a city, as a, as a community that we, that we live in. So that's what I want to talk about, praying for revival as a church. And uh, to get us started in that, I, I've been reading a book. Uh, I've finished it, but I, I read a book um, by a pastor named Jim Cimbala, it's kind of a famous book for pastors called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And I actually had the staff read it with me. We read that together. But this book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, just tells the story uh, of a church in the late 80s um, in New York City called Brooklyn Tabernacle. And uh, it tells the story of how God took these quite literally handful of people, less than 10 people, uh, that were meeting together, no money, uh, you know, no budget, no ministries, uh, Jim Cimbala and his wife moved in, uh, became the pastors, kind of accidentally didn't want to be the pastors, but were kind of made to be the pastors by their denomination. And, and God took this, this church, this handful of people, and breathed on it, blessed it. And it grew and is still obviously existing to this day, but grew into just an amazing ministry specifically that was influencing the city of New York, so much so that they would have services at times that would fill up Radio City Music Hall. And you got to know just, you know, whatever line of business you're in, there's books about how to succeed at your business. Well, it's the same for pastors. So I've read no shortage of books about how the church could grow and all those things. But this book is different because this book was not necessarily, you know, do this and, and have greeters standing here and, you know, change the name of the church to this. There was no steps in this book. Well, there, well, there was one step. He said, what changed at Brooklyn Tabernacle was we began to pray. We began to pray. We just started praying. We were praying privately. We were praying together. We, we started praying together as a church and we, we watched God in situations that should have never worked, we watched God breathe on it. And, and God blessed it because we, we just, we began to pray as a church, asking God, begging God. He, Pastor Simbala said, I just told God, I don't want to waste my life. No offense to these handful of people, but I don't want to waste my life doing this. Please God, you know. And he said this, there's a quote on in, the, in Fresh One, Fresh Fire, page 58 actually. He said, the history of past revivals, there's that word again, past revivals. He's talking about um, revivals throughout the United States and, and in Europe. It says, the history of past revivals portray this truth in full color. You always find men and women who first inwardly groan, longing to see the status quo changed in themselves and in their churches. You always find men and women who first inwardly grown, longing to see the status quo changed in themselves and in their churches. And that's why I said at the beginning, whatever a pastor's talking about over and over again, he's telling on themselves, he's telling on himself, because I, this is where I'm at. I'm just letting you know as your pastor, this is where I'm at. You know, we just celebrated 15 years as the pastor, and we said at that 15-year anniversary, we, we don't necessarily feel like we're starting year 16 as much as we feel like we're starting day one of the next 15 years. 
God has, you know, put us in a new building and he's joined us with another congregation and so many different things are happening, giving us some fresh vision about people living better lives and leading better families and building better cities. So we feel like we got fresh visions. It's all these things happening. And there has been this, this, this groaning in me, this desire in me as I'm reading through the book of Acts and as I'm praying personally myself, there's been this desire in me for the status quo to be changed. And as I say that, I'm not even saying that the status quo is all that bad because I love what's happening here. And I'm not in any way implying that somehow if you're here, like, you've become a problem or our church is not succeeding or we're not, I'm not saying any of that. But as I read about these first Christians, I have to admit to you that, that God set me up to preach through the book of Acts to make me so dissatisfied with the status quo. So dissatisfied with the status quo. Just begging God personally, like, God, I want to witness stuff like this. I want to witness stuff like this. I want my grandkids to talk about me the way I talk about my grandparents. I want services. I want, I want answered prayers. I, I want, God, I want you to do this. I want boldness like that. I want to have a heart of generosity like that. I want to see miracles like that. God, I want to see that. Take something old, God, and breathe on it and make it fresh again. And we, we, could, we could just use this word that the Bible uses. We could say, God, we want to experience a revival. I love Tim Keller's definition of revival. It's, it's like half his definition. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Um, I kind of reworded it a little bit. But, but this, is, this is how Tim Keller describes or defines revival. He's another pastor, actually recently passed away, but he moved to New York City and planted Redeemer Church. And he says this. He says, revival is when the church grows in faith and in number because non-Christians become Christians and people everyone to assume were Christians are converted and actually become Christians. I love that. I love that. He said, he, he, when he was sharing this with his story as they were getting it started in the late 80s again, coincidentally just reading about these, these churches in New York City, but he says that Revival is always twofold. It's lost people. And by lost people, he means people uninterested in God, people walking by on the streets who have no idea church is there. That's one part of it. That's why it's growing in number, but it's also growing in faith because religious people who have tried their whole lives to be moral and good and faithful realize that they've never experienced the love of Jesus Christ. We actually experienced a little taste of this as a church back in 2021 when we took the spring to preach through the book of Galatians. I think one of the reasons that God blessed it is because I was at my lowest, showing up empty, like not, like having nothing good to preach and feeling so helpless. And I think God breathed on it because he's attracted to helplessness. And we preached through the book of Galatians, really just talking about what it means to be a Christian. And, and over those nine uh, weeks that we did that series, something really remarkable began to happen. Um, people that everybody assumed were Christians started becoming Christians during that series. It was really beautiful. Matter of fact, on the last week, uh, I had everybody bow their heads and close their eyes. And I said, listen, I want to give anybody in the room who feels like that they need to become a Christian a chance to become a Christian. And the reason I'm asking you to bow your heads and close your eyes is because I don't care if you're an elder. I don't care if you're a small group leader, a staff member. I don't care if you're the pastor's wife. If you're here and you would say, you know what, I think, I think through this series I've realized that I never actually put my faith in Jesus. My faith has always been in myself, but I realize it. And sure enough, we had hands go up of 
all the people that everybody thought had been saved for years. And it was beautiful. We cried. And even just in that little nine weeks, we just experienced God breathing on something old and making it fresh and new again. And this is, this is a marker of, of revival. The church is going to grow in number because people are getting saved, but it's going to grow in faith because it's, it sees God moving in a significant way. And so as you read historically about revivals um, that have happened, you know, Azusa in California and, and some in New York, but then over Welsh revival over in Europe, and as you read about these extended period seasons where God breathed on these geographical areas or churches or movements, no matter what demographic or geographically, no matter where it, where it was, or no matter what time period it was, era it was in, there are always a few characteristics that show up, you know, different styles and stuff, but always a few characteristics that show up uh, when God breathes on and, and revives something. I want to give those to you. Number one, anytime you find a revival, you're always going to find Christians who are moved to pray. Always. God could do it, and, and, and breathe on people who don't have any desire to be revived, but that's not how he does it. He shows up to people who are begging for him to show up. He shows up for people who are desperately longing for him to show up. They're moved to pray, not because they came up with that idea on their own, but because the Holy Spirit and grace is compelling them for the status quo to be changed. And so you always find people who are moved to pray. We talked about this already, but you find non-Christians who are getting saved. Great testimonies of, you know, people that had no interest in God getting saved. You find religious people being converted. We've already talked about that. You find a, a church or a group of churches gaining influence or influencing other pastors and churches. Just here's a little, little, like a snippet of this that you would maybe be familiar with is, you know, this past year, if the Asbury, what happened on the Asbury campus, if you're familiar with that story, you know that, you know, people and churches and pastors were driving in from all over the country, other nations. And so we, in just a small little window, you see how there was influence given and, and, and people were coming in and then, and then going out. You, all, you see that in every revival. Pastors are like, Taylor Swift fans, on, you know, when she goes on tour, like if we hear about a revival somewhere, like we're going, we're going. Because we want to, we, we, we desperately want to experience that. But more than any of those things, you know, you got Christians who are moved to pray and non-Christians and religious people and influence. More than any of those things, what you always find in revivals is you find uh, a people or a movement that are marked by grace. And I think that's really important because I know many of us in the room grew up in maybe Pentecostal settings where we would have revival, they would call it revival, or that meant that you would come to church every night for like six weeks or three weeks or three months or however long it was. And, and some of us have experienced that, and, and what our experience was revival just made us really tired, or it just made us feel guilty if we weren't there enough, or we had to show up to sing every night and come straight from work, or, you know, there was this sense of the pastor said we were having revival, but it wasn't so much that what felt old was being breathed on and felt fresh again as much as we were just doing twice as much to have church, if you know what I mean by that. Some of you don't, and that's okay. 
But, but these true, real revivals, you, they are marked by grace, meaning that, yes, while people are doing more, yes, while people are showing up more, yes, a lot of that is happening, there is a joy present in that. There is, a, there is an excitement and a joy that's happening in the souls of people. So they, they don't feel as if what's being asked of them is a burden as much as a blessing. We read about that today, right? Peter and James are let go and they go back and they go to their brothers and sisters, their church family, and they're praying. And, and you don't get the sense, at least it doesn't say in these verses, that they're like, well, I guess we need to pray again. They just let Peter and James go, so I guess I'll be there. No, you get this sense that there's pr- they're praying and there's a joy to it. And a, instead of pressure and guilt, there is this desire to be together, this desire to please God. And so you, it's marked by grace because there's a, there's the, the people involved do not feel as if they are making it happen. They don't feel as if they're responsible for making it happen. They feel as if they have been blessed or lucky enough to be in a place where God is moving and showing up and making old things fresh again. And so... We see over and over and over and over and over again, and we will continue to see it throughout this series. We see this revival that is happening in Jerusalem, but we see people who are moved to pray. People who are moved to pray. I just made a quick list. Acts chapter 1, we didn't read this story. We read another part, but in Acts chapter 1, the disciples and the Christians get together to pray about a disciple to replace Judas because they were down to 11 and they needed 12. And so they come together, they narrow it down to two guys, and then they pray to God about it. And they roll dice, but that's a separate sermon, but they pray before they roll the dice, okay? But they start with prayer. Acts chapter 2, they, they get in a room together and they pray and the Spirit of God descends. Acts chapter 3, they pray for a crippled man and he's healed. Acts chapter 4, they get out of their trial and they pray together and the Spirit of God falls in the room and the place shakes and there's boldness and power. Acts chapter 5, they have a, 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 a session where sick people come and are healed in great number. Acts chapter 6, they actually pray about church structure and empowering other leaders in the food pantry and the ministry for the widows. There's some persecution in 7, 8, and 9, but in Acts chapter 10, Peter's praying up on the roof of his house when God gives him a life-changing vision and new understanding of the gospel. Acts chapter 12, they prayed all night while Peter's in prison, and he miraculously escapes, and he goes in the middle of the night and knocks on the door, and they're praying. They're praying. And so we see over and over and over and over again, we see people who want to pray. They want to pray. And I don't think we should read these stories and necessarily try to mine them for techniques on how to pray better. I think we should read these stories and look inward and challenge ourselves, not with what should we do differently, but really with this core question, is that desire in us? I say this with as little condemnation and guilt as possible. Do you want to pray? Do you want to pray? Before we talk about how to pray better, we have to start with a desire question. Do you want to pray? Is there a desire and a longing inside of you 
to see God move in these types of ways, to experience God in these types of ways. Because what we, if we read the book of Acts and try to find out their strategies and we miss the fact that it starts, continues, and is kept through people praying together, we miss the whole point of the story. We miss it. We haven't had time to talk about it yet, but as we move forward as a church, you know, we, we believe, and we've said this, we believe that Jesus makes, causes people to live better lives and lead better families and build a better city. We believe that. But the way that we believe that happens is, is really what we see in the beginning of Christianity, that all the historians would tell you that what caused Christianity to spread like wildfire was really five characteristics. And we've just adopted these five characteristics as our values. I don't expect you to know this because we haven't had time to talk about it, but we will. But really five values that we believe, five characteristics that we believe cause us to live better lives and lead a better family and build a better city is the same thing the Christians did. But those five characteristics were prayer. They prayed constantly. Service. They served. It was Christians that, that helped people. Suffering, which sounds like an odd value, but really, historians would tell you that what attracted outsiders to Christianity is that while the world was falling apart, the Christians were suffering in the same physical ways that other people were, but emotionally they had hope. The way that they suffered. That was the third one. Fourth uh, is influence. That, that they were persuasive, that they were able to influence the people around them. And then fifth was generosity, that, that when God moved in their hearts, there was a radical generosity that began to seep through, so much so that those who had were just selling what they had, giving it to the pastors and the leaders and saying, give it to the people who need it. And so we've decided that as a church, instead of maybe coming up with our own, we're just going to adopt their values and their characteristics. And we want to be a church of prayer and service suffering, influence, and generosity. And it starts and it continues and it is kept through prayer. So do you want to pray? And if you don't, then this is our starting point. Our starting point as we pray for revival is God, revive me. Before I ask you to revive our city, before I ask you to revive our schools, before I ask you to revive our church, God, will you revive me? Will you make me the kind of person who wants to pray? God, you'll help me figure out how to pray, but will you just help me to want to pray? Instead of feeling like I'm tired, I need two hours of a show to stream, or I'm tired, I need, you know, to come home and drink wine or, you know, get a glass of wine or instead of I'm tired, I need to come home and take a bath and go to bed, which all those sound great, you know, but instead of doing all of that, when, when I'm feeling tired, when I'm feeling drained, when I'm feeling, will, will you help me want to pray? Help me want to pray. And so I want to give you a Bible verse that um, can maybe be a theme for you. I've kind of just grabbed a hold of it. You know, maybe this could be a something over the next few weeks or something, write it on a card, put it in your, um, your uh, dashboard of your car or maybe you know, put it on your phone or whatever. Hebrews chapter 12, really verse 12, but 12 and 13, but really verse 12, it says, so take a new, everybody say new. Take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. 
Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. I mean, I just want that verse to encourage you, maybe spark something inside of you, ignite something inside of you, take a new grip with your tired hands. You're tired, you're depleted, you're, you, you don't feel close to God, you don't feel alive, you don't feel joy. I just want to encourage you, take a new grip with your tired hands, strengthen your weak knees, and let's start by asking God, to revive me. Revive me, God. And so here's, here's what I want to do. I want to end today by, I'm going to give you five things I want you to pray for. These are things I'm personally praying for. I want you to be praying for them. We can be praying for them as a church. I'm going to give you five things to be praying for. And really, we're just kind of breaking down the, the qualities, the characteristics of revival. But I'm going to give you five things to pray for. Number one, I'm praying for this. I want you to be praying for this. I want you to be praying for more, more personal passion for prayer. And we, that's what the whole sermon's been about, so I don't have to say a lot about that. But there is this um, desire practice cycle. You know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? What comes first, wanting to pray and praying or praying and then wanting to pray? Both. The more you pray, even if you're struggling, the more you'll want to pray. The more you want to pray, you'll pray. So I'm not saying that you, there's not this starting point where you're praying, but you say, well, I don't necessarily feel it all that much. You get, you get the process started. But what I've found in my life is the more that I pray, the more I want to pray. And so I want you to start by just asking God, God, will you give me a more personal passion for prayer? Number two, I want you to pray for lost people to be saved. And when I say lost people, I mean like lost people. Those people in your life that you would say have no interest in God. Like you, you don't even want to write their name down on a prayer card because you're like, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of ink. It's a waste of a card. Trust me, they're never going to be interested in God. I'm just praying and believing that we're just going to see some radical conversions. We'll get to that story in a couple of weeks, but... Everybody in this room has somebody that you love that's not following Jesus. That's a good place to start. Just pray for them. Some of you are praying for a husband or a wife that's not saved. Some of you are praying for a, a wayward child that's, that's not a Christian. Other family members, maybe a neighbor, maybe a best friend. Let's pray together that God would draw those people in, marked by grace, the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. Let's, let's pray that God would bring them in. And when he does, we'll just smile and laugh and experience the joy of the Lord because we know that there was no strategy. Like we can't come up with an outreach day that would have got them, but here they are. I'm praying some of you, I'll see you on a Sunday morning, you'll just give me eye contact like I didn't, I didn't even invite them. They just said they wanted to come today. I don't even know. We'll just make eye contact, and I'll know. I'll know. Some of y'all, y'all come to me some Sundays, and you're like, listen, so-and-so came with me today. No pressure, but I need you to be awesome, right? <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. But I wouldn't hold my breath. Number three. So we're praying for a more personal passion for prayer. We're praying for lost people to be saved. Number three, we're praying for religious people to be saved. We're praying for religious people. Yes, we want to experience radical conversions of people who have no interest in God, but I'm also praying that a lot of you will get saved. And you're like, well, I'm already saved. Maybe. 
And I'm not saying that to put doubt in your heart. I'm saying that because I know that if you, you know, are raised in church or raised around church, it's so easy to think that what God wants of you is for you to be a good person. And you've lived your whole life carrying that weight around and your faith has always been in yourself but never in Jesus because, yeah, you could talk about it, but it never made it from your head to your heart. And man, I'm just praying and believing that we will see people who everybody thinks is already a Christian actually become Christians. Praying and believing for that. And if that's you, by the way, and you know that's you right now, don't let pride get in the way. Don't do it, all right? Number four, be praying for a closer bond with your church family. We all know about the power of relationships, um, but the reality is we're, the people you're spending the bulk of your time with will determine who you become. You know, you can say that in a lot of different ways, your five closest friends, all that stuff, and it's true. And so if I try to convince you that you need to be in church more, if I try to convince you you need to be in a group, if I try to convince you that you need to want to be around church people more, maybe you'll do it, maybe you won't. Maybe you won't want to do it, but you'll do it and you'll oblige. I don't know. If I try to convince you, then the pressure's on me and, and you'll feel the pressure. But my prayer is that God, God's grace would invade your heart and soul and that you would just want to be here. You'd want to be with these people. They're your people. Years ago, I think it was Dakota who shared in his hope story. You know, he got saved and he said, I think his, his line was that Sunday mornings are the new Friday nights. I love that. Only God can do that. Somebody texted me this week and they said, uh, they, they were telling me they'd been reading something or listening to something. And I was like, wow, you're, you're flying. And they said, well, I used to spend all my nights out eating, drinking, and gambling. Sounds like a country song. They said, but I don't do that anymore. I got time. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. And so I want you to be praying for a closer bond with the people in this church. You'd want to be there. You'd want to be around them. You'd want to be here. It doesn't feel like obligation. You just, there's a joy that you experience. There's a newness that you experience when you're with your church family. Okay? Last thing, number five, I want you to pray for, that our church would have influence in our city. Influence in our city. I don't even know what that means. You ever pray about stuff you don't even know what you're asking for? Well, that's what I'm I don't even know what I'm asking for. But God, you can do it. And we'll look back and realize you did it. But sometimes my favorite prayers are the ones that have no details. You ever try to tell God exactly what to do? You know, God, I want this job at this time that offers this package, you know, whatever. And sometimes you get so desperate, you're like, God, I just need a new job. You know, like, I don't even know. Just do something, you know. I don't even really know exactly what I'm asking for when I say influence in our city, but I just want God to do it. Just open doors we can't open. Make connections we can't make. Whether it's schools, whether it's politicians, whether it's influential people. I don't know but I want God to do it. And I want South Louisville or Louisville in general to be better because we're here. And so I, I want God to do it in a way that only God could do it. And we'll just know there's just a joy, a, a laughter, a smile, a, a grace that comes with it because we'll just know, like, we didn't do it. God did it. God did it. So we're praying for a more personal passion for prayer. It's a lot of peace. We're praying for lost people to be saved. Praying for religious people to be saved. We're praying for a closer bond with our church family. And we're praying for influence in our city. All right, I'm going to tell you one more thing and then we're going to be done. 
We're going to take communion together, but one of the things that we're doing, the, one of the decisions that we have made and, and just actually have felt for a little while now that we need to do this, but we've tried to take our time to make sure we can do it and, and do it well. And some of you heard about this on social media this week. We put out a video, but um, we've decided that uh, for 15 years, as long as I've been the pastor here, we've never had a midweek service. It's just like if people ask you have a midweek service, we say, no, we do groups and we believe in groups. But we've decided that we're going to start doing a midweek service on Tuesday nights. And the emphasis of that service is prayer. We're going to come together and we're going to pray. We're going to worship and we're going to pray. We'll share some, you know, I'm sure there'll be a lot of weeks where we share a, a, something from the Bible and things like that. It's going to be our service together. But if you've been a part of some, you know, a couple times a year, we'll do worship and prayer nights. It's kind of like that. But we're going to be doing that every week. And so here's what I know. I know you're busy. I got four kids. My wife and I work jobs. We're busy. You're busy. I know that. And I know that when you try to install something on a weeknight that you haven't normally been doing, it, it requires an adjusting and some sacrificing. But here's what I'm asking you to do as your pastor. I'm asking you as much as you possibly can. Sometimes you can't, and I get it. There'll be times where I'm not here. There'll be times where Andrea's not here or whatever. I get it. But as much as you possibly can, I'm asking you to be here on Tuesday nights. For an hour, 7 to 8 o'clock. I'm not exactly sure what we're doing child care yet, but we'll figure it out. Do we know what we're doing yet? No? Okay, we don't know yet, but we'll figure it out. Your kids may be in here with us. That's all right. They need to learn how to pray, so that'd be good. But um, we'll come together, 7 to 8 o'clock. We'll sing a little bit. Matter of fact, I'm leading worship this week. I'm getting the guitar out. I'm going to do it. We're going to worship together. We're going to pray together. Tuesday nights, 7 to 8 o'clock. So I'm asking you as much as you can to be here, and I just want us to pray as a church, and, and, and what I, you know, we'll see what God's going to do, only God can do it, but I'm, what I'm praying and believing and asking God to do is I'm asking God to make Tuesday nights the barometer of our church's success more than Sunday mornings. Does that make sense? Like, if, if we're going to put a thermometer in the room, or if we're going to gauge the temperature, if we're going to, like, let's make Tuesday nights, just how many of us, and I'm saying this with you, I'm, I want to lead the way in this, how many of us say, like, I just want to pray. I want to be with my church family, and I want to pray. So as much as you can, I'm asking you to be here on Tuesday nights for our prayer meetings, okay? And we'll, we'll just see what God does. We're praying for more personal prayer, lost people to be saved, religious people to be saved, to bond with our church family and influence in our city, all right? All right, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to take communion, and our prayer team will be up front. But as you come forward today and you take the bread and the juice, I'm praying that maybe today for you, as you take that meal, the Lord's Supper, that old things will feel new again. Your spirit would feel refreshed. You'd experience again the joy of your salvation. So you'll have the opportunity to do that and then pray if you'd like to do that as well. Let's pray.